Hi everybody, this is John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This, of course, is the show where we raid the fridge of professional journalism. We take out a few stories about the Vatican and the global Catholic Church that have been hanging around for a few days, but are still good. And we heat them up, serve them up piping hot and delicious. Here's what's on the menu this week. Basically, it boils down to two Nobels, a bishop, and baseball. What I mean by that is, two Nobel Prizes were announced last week, the Nobel Prize for Literature and the Nobel Peace Prize. From a Vatican Catholic Pope point of view, the story in the first case is who did win, and in the second case, who didn't. We're going to break all that down for you. Then, regarding a bishop, a story out of East Timor the Vatican's ambassador in that country this past week was compelled to go on national television to beg the people of that country not to be angry and not to protest, not to resist, the way the Vatican has handled sexual abuse allegations against a bishop. Now, that may not seem particularly surprising to you. What you may be surprised by is the particular sense in which people in East Timor had been upset we will explain what's going on there. And then finally, baseball. We, of course, now are in the middle of the baseball playoffs. This has been a record-shattering year in baseball all across the board, all of which has induced me to think about what is the most unbreakable record in the Catholic Church. I will give you a couple of nominees, and then I will announce my winner in the course of this show. All that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church, so please stick around. Okay, everybody. Hello again. Happy Tuesday to you. As I said last week, if you were a regular viewer of this program, you will recognize that I am not in my natural habitat or my normal milieu, which is our professional-grade studio which was created by our good friends at Longbeard. That's a digital marketing and design company. They do RIT. They're the best in the business, and we are deeply grateful. But instead, we are on the road. I am coming to you this week from the Mile High City of Denver, Colorado, where we are actually recording this on Sunday, and I'm here to tell you that the family of my wife, Elise, did a great job of making me feel right at home today because we had a Sunday lunch that lasted about four, four and a half hours, which is about par for the course for a normal Sunday in Rome. So it was as if I'd never left, and it was absolutely fantastic. All right, let's dive in. So this week, on Thursday, the Committee for the Nobel Prize for Literature announced that the winner was French essayist and novelist Annie Ernaux. Now, this was not a particular surprise. Ernaux has been mentioned as a candidate for the Nobel Prize for Literature for probably the better part of a decade and a half, ever since she published what is widely regarded as her masterpiece, The Years, in 2008, which is, if you've read it, it is a kind of masterful reflection on memory. She has a perspective on memory as a kind of collective exercise, the way it forges a collective identity. And it, it was, it's just a terrific read. And so 
Every year, if you look at these online betting sites that will give you favorites for Nobel Prizes, she was always there. So the fact that she won in and of itself, most people would say richly deserved and hardly a thunderclap. However, there is an issue of timing here that, that makes this interesting because Ernaud, in addition to that masterpiece that I mentioned, also had published an earlier work in the year 2000, the title of which is usually translated into English as The Happening, which is a memoir of her obtaining an illegal underground abortion in 1963. That memoir was just turned into a major motion picture, which is making the rounds, also called The Happening, and critics have praised both the memoir and the movie, in part because they say it is a window onto the harrowing realities facing desperate women in a post-Roe v. Wade world. In other words, a lot of the acclaim for Ernaud right now doesn't have to do with the entire corpus of her literary works, but instead has to do with the fact that one piece of literature that she penned 22 years ago has all of a sudden acquired new political relevance because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States. Now, let's begin with dismissing the canard that the situation facing a desperate young woman in France in 1963 and the situation facing women today, that they are at all comparable, because the truth of it is they just aren't. You know, for one thing, in 1963, the social stigma that attached to pregnancy outside of marriage was enormous and overpowering. Today, obviously, the social context is very different. There were no pro-life groups in 1963 that would line up around the block to give assistance to pregnant, unmarried women who were struggling with a pregnancy. Today, of course, that is very different. And also, in 1963-era France, Arnaud couldn't simply cross the border into Belgium or Holland or Germany or Italy or Switzerland to get an abortion because the abortion was illegal in all of those jurisdictions, too. Today, in the United States, you know, a young woman living in, say, Texas or another state where abortion becomes illegal has the opportunity of crossing a state line into another jurisdiction where it is relatively easily available and having the procedure. So the notion that this is somehow a window onto the world to which we are about to return is probably fallacious. Nevertheless, I will say this. I've read the book, and I would highly recommend it. No matter where you are on the abortion debate, whether you are an ardent pro-choice person whether you are a deeply committed pro-lifer or somewhere in between, because the problem with the abortion debate, like so many debates in our time, is, is that it's conducted without much real contact with experience. The great thing about this memoir is that it is, for the most part, simply a description of her experience. And think of it what you will, I think it is valuable to know what women who feel unsupported, who feel alone, what they go through, what they think about, the challenges that they face. 
and what conclusions you draw from that experience, well, those are up to you. But I think it is important that all of us have ears to hear this kind of experience. Frankly, reading the book, I mean, there are a couple of questions I would like to ask Erna someday. I would like to ask. She, she describes how in her diary at the time, she described this new life inside of her as it or that thing out of fear that giving it a name or ascribing human personality to it would make her choice more difficult. I would like to talk about that. At another point, she describes going to a priest afterwards to confess what she had done. And this priest was apparently pretty brusque with her, and she decided that was the end of religion. You know, I'd like to ask her, did you ever have a jerk as a professor studying French literature, and did you therefore give up on French literature? Did you ever meet a cop who was a little drunk in his own power, and did you therefore give up on the rule of law? I mean, these are things I would like to talk about. But all that said, I think it's a brilliant book and it's worth reading if we can just avoid the temptation to politicize it. All right, now the other Nobel announced this week on Friday was the much-coveted Nobel Peace Prize. It went, in this case, to a constellation of groups and individuals, a pro-democracy group in Russia, a human rights and pro-democracy group in Ukraine, and then a Belarusian dissident. And obviously, all this calculated to make a statement about President Vladimir Putin and Russia's war in Ukraine. Timely, topical, and I think most people would probably say, on the money. However, can't help noticing that another candidate who had been nominated for this award by a member of Norway's parliament, Norway's government, and of course it is in Norway where the Peace Prize is awarded, in this case, Norway's Minister for Devel International Development, had nominated another candidate, Pope Francis, who, I, I haven't kept careful track of this, but I believe Pope Francis has been nominated every year since his election in 2013. Prior to that, Pope Benedict was nominated a few times, and prior to that, Pope John Paul II was nominated virtually every one of the almost 27 years he was in office. Now, the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize has been awarded since 1901. During that span of time, four U.S. presidents have won the prize. Theodore Roosevelt for negotiating an end to the Russo-Japanese War, Woodrow Wilson for the end of World War I, Jimmy Carter for the Camp David Peace Accords, and Barack Obama. Well, frankly, we're still wondering quite what that award was for, because it was just about five minutes after he was elected. He hadn't actually done anything yet. But presumably, it was the statement against racism that his election in and of itself represented. Prime ministers, secretaries of state, many other categories have received the Nobel Peace Prize. You know how many Nobel Peace Prizes popes have won? Want to take a guess? The correct answer is zero. Not one. And it is hard to imagine that there was never one moment, never one given year, in which there wasn't a pope who was at least among the primary forces for peace in that year. I mean, for the love of God, in 1990, the Nobel Peace Prize went to Mikhail Gorbachev for the peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union. Well, you know who else played a fairly significant role 
in the peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union, it was Pope John Paul II, and yet he didn't get it. Now, the question is, how come popes never win the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, I would give you three reasons. One, let's start with the fact that Norway is a Reformation country, okay? It is not a Catholic nation. I think the levels of interest and attention to what the Pope is doing are probably lower there than in many other parts of the world, and besides which, we're talking about a country whose national identity in some way was forged in the rejection of papal authority, and therefore at some basic raw cultural level, I think the idea of giving a prize to a Pope is just kind of counterintuitive. Now, secondly, one of the reasons, I think, that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee chooses particular individuals or groups is, frankly, they think either they need the money, because remember, there's a cash prize of about $900,000 that goes with the Nobel Peace Prize, or that they need the publicity that comes with the Peace Prize. I mean, these groups in Russia and Ukraine who won this year frankly, were not well known around the world, and certainly prize money that they will receive and the notoriety that they will receive will be great boons. Obviously, popes don't need that kind of help, right? I mean, popes already have a fairly high media profile, and, you know, if popes need money, they have access to it. But, you know, the problem with that as an explanation is that that also applies to American presidents or British prime ministers or major movers and shakers from other walks of life, all of whom, over the course of the last 121 years, at one point or another, have won this award. So, we therefore come to the third reason, which is, I think, a basic secularist bias. Norway is a fairly secularized country, but frankly, religion just isn't all that important, and that it doesn't matter as much. I mean, Forget popes. I mean, there's only a handful of other religious leaders who have ever won this award. There was a Lutheran bishop in the early 20th century who won it for his contributions to the ecumenical movement. The Dalai Lama won it. Mother Teresa won it. But beyond that, you run out of gas pretty fast. I mean, I did the math. There are actually only four Catholic individuals in a hundred... I mean, that is, I'm sorry. Catholic clergy or religious in 121 years who have ever won this award. And, you know, I think, now, that doesn't have to imply active hostility or anything to popes. There, there was a case of that. For a time, there was another Lutheran bishop in the 1990s and 2000s who was a member of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee who said that he would never allow Pope John Paul II to get that award because of the Catholic Church's position on contraception. but. He no longer sits on the committee. He actually left in 2003. So John Paul could have won it. Benedict could have won it. Francis certainly could have won it. So I think you add those three things up. I think, you know, Norway's history, the perception that popes just don't need the help, and this secular bias that just sort of says religion doesn't really matter. And, and I think that's how you would explain it. Now, look, the raw truth of it is, I doubt Pope Francis lost any sleep Friday night because he didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, we're talking about a guy who was named Times Person of the Year. He's been on the cover of the Rolling Stone. He won the Charlemagne Prize for promoting European unity. 
I mean, you know, he's he's received a, a fair bit of acclaim. On the other hand, never think that the Vatican doesn't notice this kind of thing. I mean, during the John Paul years, Vatican media outlets and personnel were actually told to downplay the news about the announcement of the peace prize because they felt any time the Pope didn't win it de facto, that was an insult to the Pope. Well, whatever, make of it what you will. It is simply striking. Because I think you could make an argument that during the course of the 20th century, that's roughly the same amount of time, and now the early 21st century, that is the same span that the Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded. There has been no figure on the global stage, no office on the global stage, that has made a greater contribution to global peace than the papacy. And yet, there is this towering irony that no pope has ever won the world's premier prize for peace. Food for thought, perhaps, for the Peace Prize Committee. We now move to the tiny nation of East Timor in Asia. In 1996, speaking of the Nobel Peace Prize, it was awarded to a Catholic bishop by the name of Carlos Jimenez Bello. He was the Bishop of East Timor. He was the co-prize winner, along with Jorge Ramos, who was the secular leader of the independence drive in East Timor. East Timor is a deeply Catholic nation, a former Portuguese colony, and it had been a kind of possession of Indonesia. In the 1990s, momentum for independence began to build. Because of the leadership of Bishop Bello and Ramos, that independence drive never turned violent. It was a case study, if you like, in nonviolent civil resistance. Analogous in some ways to India's push for independence from Great Britain. And in fact, Bello has often been referred to as East Timor's Gandhi. He is a national hero, deeply beloved by the Catholic people of East Timor. Now, in 2002, Bello resigned for reasons that were never fully explained and went off to Mozambique as a kind of missionary and uh, sort of disappeared from public view and had remained in the shadows until 2019, when apparently a couple of men who are now adults, but who were minors at the time, came forward to say that Bishop Bello had sexually abused them when they were minors. That charge made its way to the Vatican. An investigation, apparently, was conducted, and a decision was reached that Bishop Bello should be sanctioned and suspended. Now, that was never publicly announced. It was apparently communicated privately to Bishop Bello. It has now become public because a Dutch news magazine has reported all of this. And so it is now a matter of public record that Bishop Carlos Bello, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and national hero, has been suspended over allegations of sexual abuse, which apparently Vatican investigators found to have merit. Now, this has caused a tremendous reaction in East Timor, and the reaction measured against, say, American or Western European sensitivities may be a bit surprising. People are not upset primarily 
about the allegations that Bello was a sexual abuser. They are instead upset that the Vatican has disciplined Bishop Bello. Upset to the point that the papal ambassador in the country, that's the nuncio, had to go on national television to plead with people to accept the Vatican's decision with respect. He said, we have to show respect for the bishop, but we also have to show respect for the decision that has been reached by the Holy See. And said, look, you know, this doesn't cancel out all the great stuff that Bello did as a human rights leader and as a father of the nation. But at the same time, we have to make our peace with the fact that the Holy See has determined that these charges merit a form of sanction. Now, what is fascinating about this is, if you think about it, you know, when news breaks, say, in the United States or Western Europe or Australia or North America, right, well, Canada, that a bishop has been accused of sexual abuse and misconduct, normally the public reaction is insisting on, on swift justice, right, that discipline must be imposed. And if there is anger, it is often because people perceive that whatever discipline is imposed isn't enough. In East Timor, you have exactly the opposite reaction, and I think this is a great lesson in the realities of global Catholicism, that we Americans may assume that our sensitivities, our experiences, our priorities, our ways of seeing things in the church are universal. Ladies and gentlemen, they are not. And if we are going to make our way intelligently and faithfully in the Catholic Church in the 21st century, we have to accept that not everyone thinks or reacts the same way that we do. This is not to justify the reaction in East Timor. Neither is it to justify the reaction to, say, the McCarrick case in the United States. These are all things that can be discussed. It is simply to say that different parts of the Catholic world react differently based on their histories, their cultures, their experiences, and part of the price of a place at the table in a global Catholic church in the 21st century is accepting that and making our peace with it. Finally, baseball and the church. Now, anybody who watches the show on even a semi-regular basis knows I'm kind of a baseball nut, which for me means this is the most glorious time of the year because we're in the middle of the baseball playoffs. If you've been following the baseball season, even at a distance this year, you know it's been a record-shattering year. Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees hit 62 home runs, breaking Roger Maris's record for most home runs in a single season in the American League, a kind of mythical number. Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels has shattered the previous record for most home runs hit and most strikeouts thrown in a single season. I mean, he left it in the dust. And do you know to whom that previous record belonged? No less a Titan than Babe Ruth. Albert Pujols, meanwhile, of the St. Louis Cardinals, went over the 700 mark for a career home run, 703. So just records all over the place. And, you know, as both a baseball fan and somebody who is passionate about the Catholic Church, that led me to think about what is the most unbreakable record in the Catholic Church that is a mark that will just never again be duplicated. Now, I thought about several possibilities. 
I thought about John Paul II's mark for total number of canonizations in a single papacy, which is 484. That's not only more than previous popes, that's more than all previous popes combined. It was only in the 10th century the popes started to be the ones who would declare somebody a saint, and even then, that wasn't the only way to do it. Really, the papal monopoly on declaring saints only dates from about the 14th century. And do you know from the 14th century to the 20th how many saints popes canonized all in over that 6th century span? About 300. John Paul himself did 484. Now, that is a record that is going to be hard to duplicate, right? A second possibility that I consider, shortest papacy in the history of the Catholic Church. That record belongs to Pope Urban VII in the 16th century. It was 1590. He reigned only 13 days. His top priority upon being elected was to try to drain a Roman swamp that had been a source of malaria for the Eternal City for centuries. He personally supervised the project where, naturally, he caught malaria and died from it. I mean, it's hard to imagine another circumstance in which you would get a 13-day pope. And yet, and yet, my personal nominee for the most unbreakable record in the Catholic Church belongs to St. Peter of Verona, also known as St. Peter Martyr. He holds the record for the fastest canonization in the Catholic Church. This is the year 1253. He was canonized 337 days after he died. In other words, less than a year. Now, by way of comparison, the fastest modern canonization belongs to St. John Paul II, who was canonized eight years after his death in 2005. And that was with the five-year waiting period that is normal being waived, and that's with a lot of other things being fast-tracked. Because in the modern period, we just have way more rules. I mean, in addition to that five-year waiting period, you now have to be declared venerable, then you got to be beatified, and only then can you be canonized. And every one of those steps has some requirements. I mean, there has to be a document in Miracle, which is investigated by a panel of medical experts and a panel of theological experts. Testimony has to be collected all over the map. I mean, Mother Teresa's case took almost 20 years. And if ever, you know, in modern experience, there was somebody that the vast majority of Catholics would have considered as just a total slam dunk, right? Do not pesco. Do not collect $200. Declare this woman a saint immediately. You know, it would have been Mother Teresa. And yet, even if this was fast by modern standards, it was obviously way slower than St. Peter of Verona in the 13th century. And by the way, those canonizations all attracted considerable criticism for being too fast. So, look, I mean, take your pick. I think each one of these three records is probably deeply unlikely to be replicated, at least in any near-term scenario that I can envision. On the other hand, do remember the wisdom of the late, great Cardinal Francis George of Chicago who once said that in the Catholic Church, everything has happened at least once, and in a lot of cases, it's happened twice.
So, you know, we will see what the future has to bring. All right, that is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. We will be here next week. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you again soon.